Chapter 22 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 22. Within a month after his departure from San Francisco, Marcus had gone in on a cattle ranch in the Panamint Valley with an Englishman, an acquaintance of Mr. Sipa's. His headquarters were at a place called Modoc, at the lower extremity of the valley, about fifty miles by trail to the south of Keeler. His life was the life of a cowboy. He realized his former vision of himself, booted, sombreroed, and revolvered, passing his days in the saddle and the better part of his nights around the poker tables in Modoc's one saloon. To his intense satisfaction, he even involved himself in a gunfight that arose over a disputed brand, with the result that two fingers of his left hand were shot away. News from the outside world filtered slowly into the Panamint Valley, and the telegraph had never been built beyond Keeler. At intervals, one of the local papers of independence, the nearest large town, found its way into the cattle camps on the ranges, and occasionally one of the Sunday editions of a Sacramento journal, weeks old, was passed from hand to hand. Marcus ceased to hear from the Sipas. As for San Francisco, it was as far from him as was London or Vienna. One day, a fortnight after McTeague's flight from San Francisco, Marcus wrote into Modoc to find a group of men gathered about a notice affixed to the outside of the Wells Fargo office. It was an offer of reward for the arrest and apprehension of a murderer. The crime had been committed in San Francisco, but the man wanted had been traced as far as the western portion of Inyo County, and was believed at that time to be hiding in either the Pinto or Panamint Hills, in the vicinity of Keeler. Marcus reached Keeler on the afternoon of that same day. Half a mile from the town his pony fell and died from exhaustion. Marcus did not stop even to remove the saddle. He arrived in the bar room of the hotel in Keeler just after the posse had been made up. The sheriff, who had come down from Independence that morning, at first refused his offer of assistance. He had enough men already. Too many, in fact. The country traveled through would be hard, and it would be difficult to find water for so many men and horses. "'But none of you fellers have ever seen him," vociferated Marcus, quivering with excitement and wrath. "'I know him well. I could pick him out in a million. I can identify him, and you fellers can't. And I knew. I knew.' "'Good God! I knew that girl, his wife, in Frisco. "'She's a cousin of mine. She is. She was. I thought once of. "'This thing's a personal matter of mine, and that money he got away with, "'that five thousand, belongs to me by rights. "'Oh, never mind. I'm going along. Do you hear?' he shouted, his fists raised. "'I'm going along, I tell you. There ain't a man of you big enough to stop me. "'Let's see you try and stop me going.' Let's see you once, any two of you. He filled the barroom with his clamor. Lord love you, come along, then, said the sheriff. The posse rode out of Keeler that same night. The keeper of the general merchandise store, from whom Marcus had borrowed a second pony, had informed them that Cribbins and his partner, whose description tallied exactly with that given in the notice of reward, had outfitted at his place with a view to prospecting in the Panamint Hills. The posse trailed them at once to their first camp at the head of the valley. It was an easy matter. It was only necessary to inquire of the cowboys and range riders of the valley if they had seen and noted the passage of two men, one of whom carried a bird cage. 
Beyond this first camp, the trail was lost, and a week was wasted in a bootless search around the mine at Gold Gulch, whither it seemed probable the partners had gone. Then a traveling peddler, who included Gold Gulch in his route, brought in the news of a wonderful strike of gold-bearing quartz some ten miles to the south on the western slope of the range. Two men from Keeler had made a strike, the peddler had said, and added the curious detail that one of the men had a canary bird in a cage with him. The posse made Cribbins's camp three days after the unaccountable disappearance of his partner. Their man was gone, but the narrow hoof-prints of a mule, mixed with those of huge, hop-nailed boots, could be plainly followed in the sand. Here they picked up the trail, and held to it steadily till the point was reached where, instead of tending southward, it swerved abruptly to the east. The men could hardly believe their eyes. "'It ain't reason,' exclaimed the sheriff. "'What in thunder is he up to? This beats me. Cutting out into Death Valley at this time of year? He's heading for Gold Mountain over in the Armagosa, sure.' The men decided that this conjecture was true. It was the only inhabited locality in that direction. A discussion began as to the further movements of the posse. "'I don't figure on going into that alkali sink with no eight men and horses,' declared the sheriff. "'One man can't carry enough water to take him and his mount across, let alone eight. "'No, sir. Four couldn't do it. No, three couldn't. "'We've got to make a circuit round the valley and come up on the other side "'and head him off at Gold Mountain. "'That's what we got to do.' and ride like hell to do it, too. But Marcus protested with all the strength of his lungs against abandoning the trail now that they had found it. He argued that they were but a day and a half behind their man now. There was no possibility of their missing the trail, as distinct in the white alkali as in snow. They could make a dash into the valley, secure their man, and return long before their water failed them. He, for one, would not give up the pursuit, now that they were so close, in the haste of the departure from Keeler, the sheriff had neglected to swear him in. He was under no orders. He would do as he pleased. "'Go on, then, you darn fool,' answered the sheriff. "'We'll cut on round the valley, for all that. It's a gamble he'll be at Gold Mountain before you're halfway across. But if you catch him, here,' he tossed Marcus a pair of handcuffs. "'Put him on him and bring him back to Keeler.' Two days after he had left the posse, and when he was already far out in the desert, Marcus's horse gave out. In the fury of his impatience he had spurred mercilessly forward on the trail, and on the morning of the third day found that his horse was unable to move. The joints of his legs seemed locked rigidly. He would go his own length, stumbling and interfering, then collapse helplessly upon the ground with a pitiful groan. He was used up. Marcus believed himself to be close upon McTeague now. The ashes at his last camp had still been smoldering, Marcus took what supplies of food and water he could carry, and hurried on. But McTeague was farther ahead than he had guessed, and by evening of his third day upon the desert, Marcus, raging with thirst, had drunk his last mouthful of water and had flung away the empty canteen. "'If he ain't got water with him,' he said to himself as he pushed on, "'if he ain't got water with him, by damn, I'll be in a bad way. I will for a fact.' At Marcus's shout, McTeague looked up and around him. For the instant he saw no one. The white glare of alkali was still unbroken. Then his swiftly rolling eyes lighted upon a head and shoulder that protruded above the low crest of the break directly in front of him. A man was there, lying at full length upon the ground, covering him with a revolver. For a few seconds McTeague looked at the man stupidly, bewildered, confused, as yet without definite thought. 
Then he noticed that the man was singularly like Marcus Scholler. It was Marcus Scholler. How in the world did Marcus Scholler come to be in that desert? What did he mean by pointing a pistol at him that way? He'd best look out or the pistol would go off. Then his thoughts readjusted themselves with a swiftness born of a vivid sense of danger. Here was the enemy at last, the tracker he had felt upon his footsteps. Now at length he had come on and shown himself, after all those days of skulking. McTeague was glad of it. He'd show him now. They two would have it out right then and there. His rifle. He had thrown it away long since. He was helpless. Marcus had ordered him to put up his hands. If he did not, Marcus would kill him. He had the drop on him. McTeague stared, scowling fiercely at the leveled pistol. He did not move. "'Hands up!' shouted Marcus a second time. "'I'll give you three to do it in. One, two. Instinctively, McTeague put his hands above his head. Marcus rose and came towards him over the break. "'Keep him up!' he cried. "'If you move him once, I'll kill you, sure.' He came up to McTeague and searched him, going through his pockets. But McTeague had no revolver, not even a hunting knife. "'What did you do with that money, with that five thousand dollars?' "'It's on the mule,' answered McTeague, sullenly. Marcus grunted and cast a glance at the mule, who was standing some distance away, snorting nervously, and from time to time flattening his long ears. "'Is that it there on the horn of the saddle, there in that canvas sack?' Marcus demanded. "'Yes, that's it.' A gleam of satisfaction came into Marcus's eyes, and under his breath he muttered, "'Got it, at last.' He was singularly puzzled to know what next to do. He had got McTeague. There he stood at length, with his big hands over his head, scowling at him sullenly. Marcus had caught his enemy, had run down the man for whom every officer in the state had been looking. What should he do with him now? He couldn't keep him standing there forever with his hands over his head. "'Got any water?' he demanded. "'There's a canteen of water on the mule.' Marcus moved toward the mule and made as if to reach the bridle rein. The mule squealed, threw up his head, and galloped to a little distance, rolling his eyes and flattening his ears. Marcus swore wrathfully. He acted that way once before, explained McTeague, his hands still in the air. He ate some loco weed back in the hills before I started. For a moment Marcus hesitated. While he was catching the mule, McTeague might get away. But where to, in heaven's name? A rat could not hide on the surface of that glistening alkali, and besides, all McTeague's store of provisions and his priceless supply of water were on the mule. Marcus ran after the mule, revolver in hand, shouting and cursing. But the mule would not be caught. He acted as if possessed, squealing, lashing out, and galloping in wide circles, his head high in the air. "'Come on,' shouted Marcus, furious, turning back to McTeague. "'Come on, help me catch him.' We got to catch him. All the water we got is on the saddle. McTeague came up. He's eaten some loco weed, he repeated. He went kind of crazy once before. If he should take it into his head to bolt and keep on running. Marcus did not finish. A sudden great fear seemed to widen around and enclose the two men. Once their water gone, the end would not be long. We can catch him all right, said the dentist. I caught him once before. "'Oh, I guess we can catch him,' answered Marcus, reassuringly. Already the sense of enmity between the two had weakened in the face of a common peril. 
Marcus let down the hammer of his revolver and slid it back into the holster. The mule was trotting on ahead, snorting and throwing up great clouds of alkali dust. At every step the canvas sack jingled, and McTeague's birdcage, still wrapped in the flower bags, bumped against the saddle pads. By and by the mule stopped, blowing out his nostrils excitedly. "'He's clean crazy,' fumed Marcus, panting and swearing. "'We ought to come up on him quiet,' observed McTeague. "'I'll try and sneak up,' said Marcus. Two of us would scare him again. "'You stay here.' Marcus went forward a step at a time. He was almost within arm's length of the bridle when the mule shied from him abruptly and galloped away. Marcus danced with rage, shaking his fists and swearing horribly. Some hundred yards away the mule paused and began blowing and snuffing in the alkali as though in search of feed. Then for no reason he shied again and started off on a jog-trot toward the east. "'We've got to follow him,' exclaimed Marcus as McTeague came up. "'There's no water within seventy miles of here.' Then began an interminable pursuit. Mile after mile, under the terrible heat of the desert sun, the two men followed the mule, racked with a thirst that grew fiercer every hour. A dozen times they could almost touch the canteen of water, and as often the distraught animal shied away and fled before them. At length Marcus cried, "'It's no use. We can't catch him, and we're killing ourselves with thirst. We've got to take our chances.' He drew his revolver from its holster, cocked it, and crept forward. "'Steady now,' said McTeague. It won't do to shoot through the canteen. Within twenty yards Marcus paused, made a rest of his left forearm, and fired. You got him, cried McTeague. No, he's up again. Shoot him again. He's going to bolt. Marcus ran on, firing as he ran. The mule, one foreleg trailing, scrambled along, squealing and snorting. Marcus fired his last shot. The mule pitched forward upon his head then rolling sideways, fell upon the canteen, bursting it open and spilling its entire contents into the sand. Marcus and McTeague ran up, and Marcus snatched the battered canteen from under the reeking, bloody hide. There was no water left. Marcus flung the canteen from him and stood up, facing McTeague. There was a pause. "'We're dead men,' said Marcus. McTeague looked from him out over the desert, Chaotic desolation stretched from them on either hand, flaming and glaring with the afternoon heat. There was the brazen sky and the leagues upon leagues of alkali, leper white. There was nothing more. They were in the heart of Death Valley. Not a drop of water, muttered McTeague. Not a drop of water. We can drink the mule's blood, said Marcus. It's been done before, but... But... He looked down at the quivering, gory body but I ain't thirsty enough for that yet. Where's the nearest water? Well, it's about a hundred miles or more back of us in the Panamint Hills, returned Marcus, doggedly. We'd be crazy long before we reached it. I tell you, we're done for, by damn, we're done for. We ain't ever going to get out of here. Done for? murmured the other, looking about stupidly. Done for, that's the word. Done for? Yes, I guess we're done for. "'What are we going to do now?' exclaimed Marcus, sharply, after a while. "'Well, let's—let's let's be moving along, somewhere.' "'Where, I'd like to know. What's the good of moving on?' "'What's the good of stopping here?' There was a silence. "'Lord, it's hot,' 
said the dentist, finally, wiping his forehead with the back of his hand. Marcus ground his teeth. Done for, he muttered. Done for. I never was so thirsty, continued McTeague. I'm that dry I can hear my tongue rubbing against the roof of my mouth. Well, we can't stop here, said Marcus, finally. We got to go somewhere. We'll try and get back. But it ain't no manner of use. Anything we want to take along with us from the mule? We can. Suddenly, he paused. In an instant the eyes of the two doomed men had met as the same thought simultaneously rose in their minds. The canvas sack with its five thousand dollars was still tied to the horn of the saddle. Marcus had emptied his revolver at the mule, and though he still wore his cartridge belt, he was for the moment as unarmed as McTeague. I guess, began McTeague, coming forward a step, I guess, even if we are done for, I'll take some of my truck along. Hold on, exclaimed Marcus, with rising aggressiveness. Let's talk about that. I ain't so sure about who that who that money belongs to. Well, I am, you see, growled the dentist. The old enmity between the two men, their ancient hate, was flaming up again. Don't try and load that gun, either, cried McTeague, fixing Marcus with his little eyes. Then don't lay your finger on that sack, shouted the other. You're my prisoner, do you understand? You'll do as I say. Marcus had drawn the handcuffs from his pocket and stood ready with his revolver held as a club. You soldiered me out of that money once, and played me for a sucker, and it's my turn now. Don't you lay your finger on that sack. Marcus barred McTeague's way, white with passion. McTeague did not answer. His eyes drew to two fine twinkling points, and his enormous hands knotted themselves into fists, hard as wooden mallets. He moved a step nearer to Marcus, then another. Suddenly the men grappled and in another instant were rolling and struggling upon the hot white ground. McTeague thrust Marcus backward until he tripped and fell over the body of the dead mule. The little birdcage broke from the saddle with the violence of their fall, and rolled out upon the ground, the flower-bags slipping from it. McTeague tore the revolver from Marcus's grip, and struck out with it blindly. Clouds of alkali dust, fine and pungent, enveloped the two fighting men, all but strangling them. McTeague did not know how he killed his enemy, but all at once Marcus grew still beneath his blows. Then there was a sudden last return of energy. McTeague's right wrist was caught, something licked upon it, then the struggling body fell limp and motionless with a long breath. As McTeague rose to his feet, he felt a pull at his right wrist. Something held it fast. Looking down, he saw that Marcus, in that last struggle, had found strength to handcuff their wrists together. Marcus was dead now. McTeague was locked to the body. All about him, vast, interminable, stretched the measureless leagues of Death Valley. McTeague remained stupidly looking around him, now at the distant horizon, now at the ground, now at the half-dead canary chittering feebly in its little gilt prison. End of chapter 22 End of McTeague by Frank Norris